Feel the people power and join us as we tackle the issues impacting our nation as we fight to protect our democracy in our multiracial working class world. Topics and issues at the top of your mind, the bottom of your wallet, and deep in your soul. Let's talk. Just solutions on Free Speech TV. Welcome to another edition of Just Solutions. I'm your host, Gloria Neal. This week on Just Solutions, what does criminal justice reform look like? Hmm, yeah, what are the disparities between races? Is the system too monetized to be fair? And is there an overgeneralization when it comes to criticism toward the system? Well, my guest this week is Jerry Ionelli. He is one of the editors of The Appeal, which is a nonprofit news organization that envisions systems of support and care rather than that uh, punishment or punitiveness. Welcome to the show, Jerry. How are you? I'm well. How are you? You know, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. But criminal justice reform is always knocked by those who really are, uh, right? They're not really, they're saying, are we throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Because it's assuming that everyone who wants reform starts from the same place of compromise. What do you say to those who don't agree at all and think status quo is acceptable? I think a lot of people don't really understand the basic history of our criminal kind of punishment system. Uh, this is a system that that was born out of uh, in the South, you know, effectively hunting down uh, slaves and the North uh, sort of surveilling and, and generally beating down labor organizers. I mean, those are the two places that uh, our justice system began, basically. Uh, it was not founded effectively as a system to ensure public safety. That was those really not, quote unquote, the like main original drivers of where this all came from. And um, that history is not really taught in schools. And so I, I it's all right that I, I understand people don't know that. I wish more people did, because that's kind of where this all started and where it all comes from. And everything we've effectively ever been doing since is to try to kind of pull it away from being that. And uh, I think it's an open question that if it can ever be really pulled away from those things and, and really fundamentally changed in any kind of way, rather than being kind of torn down and start over. Uh, and, and more specifically for those who are kind of fine with the status quo, uh, generally speaking, I, I would imagine those people have really not come in contact with the system before. Um, but those who do come in contact with the system have, you know, tend to report that it is just wildly unhelpful when they actually do need help. Uh, we know that, you know, murder clearance rates by police, which is a fancy term for basically saying how often does, do police officers actually solve a murder, which is kind of the thing that most people would assume is, the, you know, your stereotypical kind of main job of what a cop should be doing, uh, very, very low and continue to drop every single year. Uh, you know, in some cities, it's like roughly about 30%. So 70% of murders go unsolved. Uh, and we see this again in, in cases of uh, sexual assault, for example, where uh, sexual assault survivors will come to police seeking help and assuming that, you know, police departments will uh, bend over backwards to try to help them, take care of them, solve what happened to them. And in fact, what often happens is uh, these people unfortunately find out how callous and unhelpful the system can be and wind up reporting that they feel victimized again by police officers who uh, either made fun of them, disbelieved what they were saying, uh, 
you know, generally put them down and didn't help, blamed them for their own assault, et cetera. Uh, so for those who are fine with the system, you know, I'll just kind of effectively warn you that there may come a time where you need it, you need help from it and, and frankly, will probably find it won't help you. Yeah, that, that I think is very, very true. You know, I heard you say criminal punishment system and understanding what that really means. And you're right, a lot of people have not come into play with the legal system. And so they think, oh my goodness, I've seen something done wrong. And, you know, I'm going to report this, not thinking, oh my goodness, I saw that take place. I'm the only one that's here. I need to make sure they don't say I'm the person who does it. How can you help them to not be so naive? Because there was a time where I used to think, oh, most cops would pull you over. I mean, I have never had a problem. I've even had a police officer pull me over and say, you know what? Good job wearing that seatbelt. You know, I mean, right? That's, that's, that was the reaction from my husband, right? What you just did. <laughs> but all of that being said, the average person, to your point, does not know. How do you get them to better understand where it was born out of and how it has, in many cases, metastasized today? I think it's really a matter of education. Um, and I think people have been in some states and cities have been doing a better and better job of, you know, educating these things. I think people became significantly more aware of a lot of these things uh, after kind of the uprising in 2020, after the murder of George Floyd. Um, I think among younger people, these things are being shared more and more and more often on social media. I think I think there's a better kind of literacy about this stuff uh, among younger people. But uh, it is still not a thing that's really taught in schools. It's a thing I had to seek out and learn myself. Uh, you know, I, I did not grow up as someone who really came in contact with the system at all. And then I moved to the big city and was like, wow, this is way different than I ever anticipated. Uh, and it's a thing you, in its current form in America, you need to kind of seek out and read books about and, and learn. And, and it's my wish that those things are taught in schools and, and uh, explained better to people at the jump. But, you know, those are that kind of gets exactly into the debate about quote unquote teaching critical race theory uh, in schools basically that has been fought and beaten down by, by a lot of folks on the uh, right wing of this country. Uh, those are the exact things that teaching those things would teach. <laughs> and it is the history of our country. It just is, you, you know, that you might not like it, but that, that just simply is what happened. And uh, you know, it's unfortunate that there's a movement to effectively ban teaching these kind of basic facts to children. But uh, I think it would be, very helpful. Yeah, I certainly can agree with you on that answer. But, you know, let me ask you, why are legislative bodies, big and small, resistant to these police alternative programs, even when they see the data that shows they work? I mean, it seems like a logical step to keeping the public and police officers safer. And I know I'm going to give you a chance to answer that, but I am going to follow that up with a question on what so many of us talk about, the good cops. But first, answer that one for me. Yeah, as I kind of mentioned at the jump, you know, these programs were not created and invented in this country out of a desire to engender public safety. They were, you know, created to enforce uh, social order that existed at the time and still, by and large, kind of exists today. And you just kind of still see that in the in the specific crimes that officers, you know, police and patrol. Uh, you know, you're seeing officers typically, you know, hyper focusing on these kind of small petty crimes like, you know, stealing razors from a CVS or something. Uh, but meanwhile, your, you know, average beat cop is not, you know, beating down the door of someone committing any kind of white collar financial fraud. Uh, all that is to say that, you know, those sort of hyper specific 
focuses on on these sort of small crimes uh, are arbitrary and and kind of generally uh, not what you would do if you designed a system from the ground up to make people feel safer and literally make people safer. Uh, if you look at what makes communities not actually have crime, it's almost always poverty-based. And so the you know argument effectively is why are we spending so much money on policing people who are in poverty for taking actions that they generally would take when they are in poverty, as opposed to just helping them get out of poverty in the first place. Uh, when you see a community, you know, take your mentally stereotypical suburban, you know, middle America white picket fence community, there are not generally cops rolling around constantly enforcing the order there. That's not what they need to do because people generally have uh, the money they need and and support they need to you know not kind of take those actions. And so, when you have a force of people, uh, whether it's a police department, police union, prison system, what have you, uh, that kind of rely on that system for their jobs, for their livelihoods. Uh, policing is, you know, about as stable a job in this country as could possibly exist, thanks to our national national system of police unions. Uh, they're often fairly aware, if you talk to them, that what they do doesn't necessarily fix society, make people safer, etc. But it's it's a job for them. Uh, and you have quite a lot of vested interest in this country that, you know, will perpetuate those things and and perpetuate keeping, you know, that sort of force of people employed at the expense of what actually could make people safer, which, uh, in my opinion, is uh, better so better social support, better resources, better housing, better health care, what have you. Uh, and kind of on top of it is that, you know, when you, there's a lot of talk about quote unquote, sort of defunding the police in this country. When you start kind of peeling those things back, uh, you know, truly giving people the amount of social support they need to, you know, really not live in poverty and not find the need to shoplift from a convenience store or whatever it is, is going to require quite a lot of money from quite a lot of places. And uh, when it comes to legislation, the the folks who kind of have that money <laughs> generally don't really want to be taxed and, and give a lot of it up. Uh, and so you see kind of this, the people who, you know, would effectively be needed to fund uh, better systems of housing, better systems of uh, social support, better mental health care in this country, all those kinds of things are very reluctant to actually, you know, sort of pay the taxes necessary to actually build that stuff in this country. So instead, what you have is just kind of a system that dispatches officers uh, into, you know, generally urban areas to kind of surveil and, and arrest the poorest among us uh, instead. And that system is working pretty well for the people at the top of it, basically. No, I get that. And, and certainly uh, understand, uh, you know, those challenges as we look at our society overall, because a lot of the people, whether they're saying defund the police or police reform, um, and I'm more of the reform part because, you know, you think about if something big happens, you see a murder, you see a hit and run, you see a robbery, the first thing most people do is call 911. Hello, somebody, right? So the good cop question, and we'll talk about the lay of the land momentarily, but if we're constantly talking about, well, you know, there are way more good cops than bad cops, and I don't know if somebody polled 18,000-plus law enforcement agencies across the country and got that data, but we hear that a lot. Generally, I'd like to believe that as well, but I have polled no one. But if 
there are one bad cop per 18,000 plus agency. That's way too many just right there. And in my mind, living in the real world, not utopia, you think, well, there are more than just one bad cop per agency or law enforcement agent. Here's the question. At what point, because the good cops are saying, yeah, they're among us, but there are way more of us than there are them, but if the bad cops aren't doing, or the good cops aren't doing anything to rein in or report or deal with the internal family problem of the bad cops, at what point do the bad cops kind of take a sidestep and the good cops become the bigger problem because it's that complacency that's allowing this culture to continue on? What you see, I mean, just speaking statistically, uh, a, a small minority of Police officers are statistically, I want to say it's about 20% of all officers, but I, I could technically be wrong about that exact number. But it is a small minority, statistically speaking, of officers commit the vast majority of misconduct in this country. Um, and that can range anywhere from, you know, just being mean to someone who came to them for help all the way up to, you know, police brutality. Um, but I, I think there's a, a to, to your point, there's a kind of sliding scale of what we consider good and bad apples quote unquote, and I think there's a hyper focus in the media of officers who do commit that absolute worst end of misconduct, which is, you know, being on video, hitting someone or, or shooting them to death or, or what have you. But there's a real sliding scale there. And I, I think police departments, police unions have done a very good job of making it seem like the rest of what policing is, is a useful endeavor uh, at this point. So I refer to lay of the land. What is happening in the criminal justice and legal system now? In other words, you know, the appeal and all the work that you all are doing and have done, are you seeing any changes that are positive, any signs of hope? Uh, yeah, that's a qualified yes, but yes. Um, effectively, what happens, you know, we all watched in 2020 is, you know, people around both the nation and honestly the world uh, kind of came together and got out in the streets to varying <laughs> degrees uh, during the kind of uprisings around George Floyd's murder. And we're kind of still in the aftermath of that. Uh, there was a lot of movements in the immediate months after kind of, you know, May, June, July, August, 2020. Uh, a lot, of, basically every kind of major, at least major city run by a, a sort of liberal leading administration created some kind of alternatives to policing committee, uh, you know, listen to the people in the streets saying that they want some kind of change, uh, uh, you know, to the system that we have here. And ever since then, you know, no, no change in this country ever kind of comes without some backlash. And we've basically just been in this kind of era of backlash ever since, um, you know, there were numerous pilot programs created across the country to kind of move responses in some way uh, away from armed police officers. You saw a number of uh, cities and states, uh, including in, in Denver, where you all are located, uh, creating programs where if you call 911 for, you know, mental health emergency, for example, and um, if you speak even to police officers uh, themselves, they will likely tell you they don't want to be uh, responding to mental health crises either. They, they often, I talk to quite a lot of them for my reporting and, and they, you know, one of the most common things they tell me is that like, you know, they don't feel equipped to be a mental health responder and don't really want to be one either. Um, but, you know, you saw the number of these programs kind of start to take shape. And then you saw 
as loud as the uh, you know voices during the George Floyd protests were, uh, you know, almost as loud the kind of conservative press and general uh, folks who disagree with that have been kind of trying to beat that back basically ever since. Uh, you saw, you've you know seen a number of attempts to uh, oust kind of more left-leaning folks in the justice spaces. Um, you know, there was some of it has been successful, some of it not. Generally, the, the, this kind of backlash has like wound up being overwhelmingly unsuccessful, which is you know for those who believe the system needs change is a good thing. And so to kind of give give a few examples of that uh, in San Francisco and within the last year, uh, they had elected a prosecutor who you know stood kind of on the left side of things named Chase Abudin. And uh, after kind of a long campaign, uh, largely spearheaded by Fox News, uh, Chase was uh, recalled successfully and kind of replaced with a kind of more hardline, tough on crime prosecutor. Uh, but that has otherwise kind of not really played out around the country. There have been similar efforts. There was a kind of left-leaning prosecutor in Philadelphia named Larry Krasner. And there was a, a similar kind of attempt to oust him that failed. Yeah. Uh, you saw it actually within the last week in Chicago, uh, there had been two different uh, Chicago mayoral candidates, one running, you know, on this kind of classic tough on crime uh, platform uh, and another running again on uh, attempting to at least and, and at least giving lip service to the fact that he's, you know, would like to reform the justice system. And the kind of press had, you know, really suspected and polling had even suspected that, that the sort of tough on crime candidate would win. And that did not happen. Uh, Brandon Johnson, the other uh, uh, candidate actually won. And frankly, the, the I think the most interesting thing about that entire race is if you uh, map out kind of the most, the areas of Chicago that are hardest hit by crime, uh, the tough on crime candidate did worse in each of those areas. Uh, and the, the candidate actually calling for reform did best in the you know areas hardest hit by crime. Uh, so we're in this kind of strange backlash space. There's other places. Uh, San Francisco is an interesting place where uh, there's been so much kind of media talk about it that they've kind of successfully kind of cowed some politicians into you know peeling back some of the reforms they've made. Uh, there's a recent article out uh, about how they had uh, created a 911 program designed to send. Uh, unarmed, you know, behavioral health workers to homeless and unhoused people. And within the last few months, that, that program, uh, which was working, and, you know, rather than sending an armed police officer who might hurt someone who's out on their luck, sending a behavioral health worker, which is probably what that person needs, uh, that program has effectively been had its funding cut. And uh, so that's kind of the fight we're now in, uh, in broad strokes. So let's look at the data. Because some of the data, and, and it's, you know, it's hard to refute. By the way, uh, I wasn't surprised uh, with Chicago either, just because when black and brown people, but I'll just speak for myself, when black folks hear, I'm one black folk, by the way, <laughs> but when they hear tough on crime, that usually means more of us are going to get locked up. So any candidate that's coming at us with that and, you know, it's not... Look, I'm all for individuals who commit serious crimes to be locked up. Marijuana, to me, is not a serious crime unless somebody's been hurt. But I think for the most part, um, when you say that or when you hear it, you're like, okay, no, because the system, you might have good intentions, but the system's not designed for me to come out with a positive outcome. So I am a little leery of that tough on crime thing. But the data, the disparity between the races, let's talk a little bit about that. What does the data show? This data has unfortunately not gotten a lot 
better in recent years. Uh, as a 2020 uh, report out of, I guess to back up a step, in broad strokes, uh, in almost every single statistical capacity, people of color are uh, more likely to be arrested, pulled over, imprisoned, imprisoned for longer periods of time, uh, what have you, in, in virtually every single capacity. Uh, as a study from ABC News in 2020, uh, it said that black people were five times as likely uh, as white people to be arrested overall. Uh, that same study said that in 250 municipalities, uh, which could be whether city, town, what have you, uh, some some areas, black people were 10 times as likely to be arrested as white people. Uh, black and Hispanic drivers are uh, slightly more likely to be pulled over, but when that you know traffic stop happens, they are significantly more likely than white people to be searched by police officers. Uh, I think one of the most telling statistics, I think, in this entire uh, uh, debate is that those rates go down at night and become more equal because uh, police officers, it's harder for an officer to tell the race of the driver at night. So they actually are less, effectively less racially biased at night because they can't see as well. Uh, so I, I think that's one of the most telling statistics in this entire debate. Uh, when it comes to prison, uh, you know, black and Latino people in this country uh, make up about 30% of our population, but more than half of our prison system and uh, specifically when it comes to, you mentioned marijuana, it comes to drug arrests, uh, that holds up as well. And I think a really, really important statistics there is that uh, white people are statistically as likely or maybe even a little bit more likely to use or have drugs, but are statistically far less likely to be arrested for it. So you have uh, people you know, using drugs and, and if you want to call it crime, committing drug crime at the same rates, uh, but only, you know, one or two classes of people are actually being arrested for at the end of the day. Then you get into the sort of pretrial and you know prison stages. Uh, people of color are more likely to be denied bail for numerous reasons. Uh, a lot of bond eligible and bond ineligible uh, uh, charges, uh, you know, wind up falling more heavily on people of color. Uh, and when you are held pretrial, your likelihood of going to prison and going to prison for a longer time increases. Uh, and then once you are in prison, uh, it is significantly harder for you to get parole if you are a person of color. Uh, parole boards are very arbitrary. It, it's there's an art to getting parole as much as there is to uh, uh, as much as it is kind of a, a process. Uh, and there's some good evidence that parole boards are basically just influenced by race as much as they are anything else. Uh, and then, frankly, once you are then uh, released from prison, uh, again with Everything I just mentioned uh, in terms of you know the system hyper-focusing on people of color, it then leads to downstream effects later on. Uh, there's fantastic arguments that this creates poverty uh, rather than uh, solving it in communities of color because you are then kind of makes it hard to get a job. It makes it, uh, in a lot of municipalities, you can lose some kind of basic rights. Uh, there were some recent reforms passed to voting rights in Florida, but before that, uh, you know, you could be stripped of your right to vote if you were a felon in Florida, and the disparity had become so great that one in four Black Floridians uh, did not have the right to vote in Florida uh, because of kind of how skewed the system had become. People will often look at the stuff and say, uh, you know, why are these statistics so skewed? Uh, is it the fault of these people? Uh, and if you kind of zoom out and look at, you know, how crime and crime statistics are tracked and created, uh, police will create crime statistics wherever they are deployed. 
uh, as a matter of where they're deployed and, and deployment choices are, again, arbitrary. Officers will say it's based on, well, where is crime? Where was crime before? Uh, where, that means where we need to send our officers now. Uh, and this kind of goes back to, again, what I'm saying about how, you know, historically police began uh, being deployed again to, you know, communities of color very much on purpose. So we had a, it, not that it's not racist now, but an even more racist justice system 100 years ago. Uh, but those statistics have kind of stayed with us effectively. And so when officers are like, well, this neighborhood has historically been high crime, uh, what they're really saying is we have historically sent police officers to this neighborhood uh, and basically haven't stopped. That That is, that's some powerful stuff right there. And all of those examples, we have seen them. Final question, and it is going to be a quick one. So when we look at the monetization of the prison system, does it really shine the light on how broken the system really, really is? Monetization is a fun topic. Um, people like to focus really heavily on it. Um, you have a number of prisons that are for-profit, run by for-profit companies. And, you know, as any for-profit company will tell you, I mean, I've, I've spent a number of time like reporting on these companies. And if you go in and read their uh, stock market, you know, their, their SEC filings, all that kind of stuff, they want more people in their beds. They want more people in prison that is, you know, good business for them. Uh, the same goes for there's all kinds of profit and contractors, you know, people who provide iPads, people who provide email services, people who provide telecom services, you know, all kinds of stuff. Those are for-profit companies as well. And they, again, benefit from, they truly are very transparent about saying that they benefit from, you know, more people being in prison. Uh, that being said, however, they are, especially when it comes to for-profit prisons in general, a much smaller kind of wing of the system than a lot of people, would, I, I think, understand. I, I think it's you know, fair to say that we need to reform the system, but I, I think not including a component where you at least have to acknowledge and understand those things is, is important as well, because you, you know, uh, as much as we all might want to be policed less in this country for various reasons, you know, uh, doing that is certainly going to involve potentially putting some people out of work and, you know, reform efforts, I, I think, really need to be kind of cognizant of that. Yeah, and, and reform is a better answer than doing away with, because you and I might be law-abiding for the most part. I mean, you know, who doesn't speed? But when you start talking about some of the more egregious crimes, those who are specifically trained and should be trained much better probably are a better answer. Jerry Ionelli, thank you so very much. Your paper, your magazine, your information, all of the data it's so very important to this struggle that we are going through, especially right now in our country. So thank you so very much. I appreciate you coming on Just Solutions. Thank you. And thank you for joining me on this week's edition of Just Solutions. Until next time, keep being involved, keep making sure that you show up and make sure that you not only present the problem, but you also present a solution. Have a good one.